Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Peter Brannan. Peter Brennan is an award-winning science journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, and others. In The Ends of the World, Peter digs deep into our planet's history to explain the five mass extinctions Earth has gone through. We sat down with Peter to talk about these past apocalyptic events and what they can tell us about the direction we're headed in today. So we have with us today Peter Brannan, author of The Ends of the World, and thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so in your book, you talk about the five mass extinctions that have happened in our Earth's history. Um, so how do you kind of go back through history and figure out what happened with that? Well, for a few centuries now, um, you know, since sort of the beginnings of uh, geology, um, what used to be called natural philosophers now are considered scientists. But these people noticed that there were these um, sort of big breaks in the fossil record where, you know, totally different suites of animals um, would follow a completely other different suite of animals. And for a long time, it was like sort of um, thought that maybe there was this gradual transition from one reign of one sort of earth to another. And then this was kind of all overturned in 1980 when, with the discovery that you know, an asteroid hit at the end of the age of dinosaurs, um, which led to the age of mammals. And really in the last few decades, this field of mass extinctions has been um, sort of gone crazy and going back to these big transitions in Earth history and trying to figure out what went wrong. And so my book was really following around geologists and paleontologists as they sort of tried to put the pieces together in these sort of like detective stories of what went wrong in like the biggest disasters in the history in the history of the planet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and so it seems like going through the book, kind of looking at all these, a lot of them have to do with carbon yeah. entering the atmosphere, which mildly relevant today. Right. Yeah. So that was one of the motivations for writing the book is that I thought that this um, there was definitely this newsy relevant aspect that um, you know people associate mass extinctions with asteroids because of the discovery of the. Um, you know, essentially a layer of asteroid dust at, right when the dinosaur, the big dinosaurs go extinct. And so, but in the last few decades, as geologists have looked for evidence of other asteroid impacts at the other mass extinctions, they haven't really found it. And what I thought was so interesting and sort of something we can learn from is that a lot of these mass extinctions are associated in large part with huge climate changes um, driven by changes in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, so... Today we're worried about carbon dioxide going up too fast and it getting really warm, but in some of the mass extinctions it looks like maybe you had falling carbon dioxide and you had ice ages, but the scary ones are the ones that are, you know, you have these volcanic events that shoot a ton of CO2 in the air, it gets incredibly hot and almost everything on the planet dies. So mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of frightening. Um, yeah. um, I think it's, uh, these events are still kind of um, fuzzy and mysterious and we don't, we're don't we starting to get a finer resolution idea of what happened um, but I think it's really urgent that I mean I think it's an urgent area of study because we're trying to figure out just how carbon dioxide has caused problems in Earth's history um, and certainly as we look forward the next few centuries it's you know it's 
it's kind of cool on the one hand that there are these old experiments that the Earth's already run you can go back and look at, but it's also very frightening, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to note that even though there are similarities between what's happening now with carbon and the, these past extinctions, um, the past ones just happened naturally. It wasn't, right. you know, as a result of any man-made yeah. carbon right. emission. Yeah, so there's this quote I love from one paleontologist who I interview in the book, Peter Ward, and he says, um, it doesn't matter if carbon dioxide's from Volvos or volcanoes, you know, the Earth doesn't care. It does the exact same mm-hmm. thing once it's up in the atmosphere. And in some ways, yeah, it was a, a different way of getting CO2 in the air, but in some ways it was almost the exact same thing. So the worst mass extinction ever, the end Permian mass extinction, 252 million years ago. And that's the asteroid one, correct? No, no, that's the... Uh, asteroid is the end Cretaceous. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, so that was 66 million years ago. So what's crazy is that was actually the most recent one, and so all mm-hmm. the others in the book are even more ancient. And so there's sort of these time periods that people don't... Like, the general public doesn't really know about these worlds, which mm-hmm. is another thing I sort of wanted to introduce people to, is these whole worlds that have you know vanished that we don't really know about, or most people don't. Um, but yeah, so the end Permian was um, 252 million years ago, and on land, you have sort of these weird proto-mammal, but still reptile things that walk, were walking around. And in the ocean, you have a very ancient world where trilobites, these sort of horseshoe crab-looking things, are still around. And the reefs are made out of all these animals that don't exist anymore. Um, and almost everything goes extinct. Uh, you don't find trees again for 10 million years in the fossil record. And coral reefs are replaced by bacteria. So just everything is going wrong. And the cause were these volcanoes in Russia that... Um, the magma, when it was underground, that fed these volcanoes actually burned through one of the biggest coal basins in the world. So you had tons of magma burning coal, oil, natural, and gas, and just shooting CO2 up in the air. Exact, I mean, we're doing the exact same mm-hmm. thing today. We're just, it's not a volcano, it's <laughs> us. Um, Volvo's not volcanoes. Yeah, exactly, right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the planet is climate change. And yeah. Yeah. So there, um, there was just an article last week that was kind of making the rounds on the internet right. um, about that we are in the midst of the sixth extinction right, right now, yeah. which wasn't helped by the fact that the day after, there was a report of the um, largest ice shelf breaking off Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Do you think we are, in fact, in the next extinction now? Well, so the first thing I'd say about the ice shelf is that it sounded very worrying, and it is a gigantic piece of ice that did calve off Antarctica, but from what I've read, it is... Though it's dramatic, it's kind of in keeping with what happens seasonally in Antarctica. And it, you can't necessarily tie it to climate change, but certainly mm-hmm. in the future we should expect more things like that happening. Um, as for the sixth extinction, this is kind of a... I kind of threw myself into this debate by... The, and one of the excerpts in the book that came out in The Atlantic was me talking to this Smithsonian paleontologist, Doug Irwin. Mm-hmm. Um, and his contention was that we're not in the sixth extinction. Um, and that his reasoning is both encouraging and also extremely scary um and it's all about how he thinks extinctions play out so certainly humans have done an unbelievable amount of damage to the ecosystem you know animal populations are have been you know dramatically reduced and their ranges have been reduced and we've driven a lot of things extinct um but i think so far in the last few hundred years this the best um, estimates we have for how many species we've driven extinct is something below 1%. Um, and some of these mass extinctions is 90%. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely not there yet, which is the good news. Um, but the the scary news, I would say, at least if you buy his explanation for how mass extinctions unfold, is that they tend to be these really rapid network collapses. 
um, sort of like power grid failures where mm-hmm. you might be, you know, really giving the ecosystem a beating um, and it sort of takes it and goes along and like things aren't as good as they used to be. But then suddenly everything collapses in this r- dramatic network collapse. So it could be that, yeah, we're really giving animals all the, and plants all they can take and, you know, they're getting smaller populations and everything, but there aren't that many extinctions. And then all of a sudden the whole thing, whole house of cards comes down. Mm-hmm. So that is the scary part of it, is that we might be inching up to, you know, an end Permian sort of situation, not even know once we reach the point of no return, sort of. So yeah, that makes conservation more urgent, not mm-hmm. less urgent. So in terms of that, um, you know, you're saying it could be a sudden rapid collapse of everything. Um, but in terms of geology, as you talk about in the book, tens of thousands of years from a geological perspective are instantaneous. So yeah. realistically, how, how rapid would... Yeah. that kind of rapid collapse bit would it be like a day after tomorrow situation or is it like is it a little more gradual than that from our perspective yeah. no I mean that's it, it is tough when you're like immersed in geological timescales like I have been to and then people ask well, alright well what's going to happen in my lifetime it's very mm-hmm. hard to make those to sort of zoom in and out like that but um, you know geologically it would be you know tomorrow like basically mm-hmm. um, but um I think so. There was this paper a few years ago, and it was "Has Earth's Sixth Mass Extinction Arrived?" by Anthony Barnowski at UC, um, University of California, um, and his estimation was that in a few more hundred to thousand years, um, we might reach big five mass extinction levels of extinction. So geologically, mm-hmm. that is. I mean, that's, that's, appa- that's appalling, that's instantaneous, mm-hmm. but it still means that there's time to save the world, I guess, which is the good news. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting as I was reading the book and sort of thinking about all of this is that um, we've sort of built our society in this mindset that the climate we have right now, the geography we have right now, is very much just the natural state of the world, that's how it's going to be for a while. And reading the book, it you, know, you make it very clear that that's just not the case at all. So would... Um, so if we weren't already directly contributing to climate change, would we still be, you know, sort of headed for disaster in the long run anyway, just well, naturally? yeah, I think it's an interesting question because we're actually, people think of the Ice Age as something that happened already. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a long time ago. It's when the woolly mammoths and stuff around. But we're actually still in the middle of that exact same Ice Age. So mm-hmm. starting around 2.6 million years ago, the Earth descended into, you know, deep glaciation in both hemisphere, I mean, in the North and South Pole. And, um, there have been these times when, um, you know, it, like glacial maximums, when the ice you know, comes down and covers a lot of North America, and that's what we think of as Ice Age. Um, but then there will be periods where it's a warm interglacial for a few thousand years, which is what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been dozens of these in the past few million years. So, and there, And that's controlled by, you know, the amount of, sunlight reaching the northern hemisphere in the summer and the planets you know wobble in space um and if we weren't around we might be ready to go back into a deep glaciation of this ongoing larger ice age that we're that we're in Mm -hmm. um but certainly that nothing like that is going to happen anytime in the next few centuries to a few thousand years because of the way that humans have interacted with the climate um we have the possibility of um you know, injecting as much CO2 into the air as there was in the early hothouse of the mammals when there were um, palm trees in, in Alaska and crocodiles in the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. So 
Which I love the image of that. Which yeah, is no, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can go to these places. Ellesmere Island in Canada is one place people do research where it's literally the top island you can find in the Canadian Arctic. Mm-hmm. And people find um, bones of like hippo relatives and jungles and lemur relatives. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a very. Just vastly different from yeah, what we know of. Yeah, today. and so sometimes you hear people who are, um, you know, I guess in like the skeptic community say, mm-hmm. sort of offhandedly say things like, well, it's been warmer before and life's been happy. And, you know, they're right. But what does that world look like mapped onto mm-hmm. the world we live in now? I mean, it's a totally different planet. And right. I don't know if we could, certainly a networked society could survive that transition to that the Eocene or some crazy time. That's, yeah. Uh, there would definitely be a lot of adapting. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so let's say, you know, we go forward, climate changes, you know, whether it's, you know, carbon, you know, makes the planet hotter or somehow we're able to push back and we enter, you know, back into this ice age we're in. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, human civilization would collapse first or humans would go extinct first? How do you think that would that would play out? Um, well, I mean, whether civilization would collapse is, I mean, a very speculative. I mean, these are both very speculative questions. Um, mm. I tend to think that something that's really highly networked and, um, you know, Human civilization is a very complex thing that seems to rely on a stable set of circumstances in the planet, mm-hmm. and just totally throwing a climate wrench into that might make it collapse. But I actually think that humans as a species um, are, in the words of one of the paleontologists I interviewed, extremely extinction resistant. Um, we're, the, we're incredibly adaptable, we have a wide geographic range, we're all over the planet. Um, as one person put it to me that, you know, Neanderthals were perfectly happy for hundreds of thousands of years without industrial society. It just, if you need glasses, your quality of life is horrible. Right. <laughs> but, you know, um, so I think we'll, I think it's less a question of species extinction than it is about, yeah, can we maintain the, the quality of life that we've come to expect? Um, and that, you know, when you look at the worst climate projections, there's, you would you could imagine there'd be some serious strains on the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so if the sixth extinction were to happen, um, what do you think would come after that? Would the planet survive? Is Earth done? Would we make it through? Would we adapt, evolve? What would life sort of do after that? Yeah. Well, whether or not we made it through, the Earth would sur- the Earth will be fine in the long run, mm-hmm. which is something that kind of came as a revelation to me in the book. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know, climate and ecological gloom and doom as if, like, we're going to bring the planet down with us. Mm, and taking it, care of Mother Earth and all of that. Yeah, yeah, and that, like, we could screw up so bad that we could end the planet. But that's not... I mean, mm-hmm. I am highly doubtful that we could be worse than the end Permian mass extinction. Um, and as one person put that put it to me, that was the best thing that ever happened to planet Earth because right after that you get... Or 30 million years later, you get dinosaurs and mammals and um, all, sorts, all sorts of life that, you know sort of needed the slate to be cleared before it could mm-hmm. sort of take over. So who knows what, what would come after us, but I'm, the evolution's incredibly creative. You'd probably have these some sort of big herbivore and predator from some branch of the tree of life that managed to make it through. And um, I, don't, if that, I don't know if that's consolation, but yeah, in 10 million years, the earth will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something. <laughs> yeah, right. So what... Um, are there any other really big questions about 
these past mass extinctions that you're still looking for answers to that paleontologists haven't quite discovered um, the full explanation for yet? Um, well, there's a lot of interesting questions around them. Um, I think one of them is what we are talking about before, really trying to figure out just how good of analogs they are for our own future and whether, mm-hmm. you know, we should be really worried about this or whether, okay, these are just such outliers we don't have to worry about anymore. And we don't really know that yet. Um, there are some extreme warming events in Earth's past um, that aren't associated with mass extinctions, but um, as far as we know, they were at a slower rate than what we're doing now. And so a lot of paleontologists say, no, look to these big, horrible events for an analog. And I think the closer... We need more. We need to know. It should be, as one person put it to me, it should be a national priority to figure out what went wrong in mm-hmm. the Permian mass extinction. Um, like other big questions around these are, you know, how does the world recover? Because with every mass extinction, there's also a mass radiation where evolution just is in overdrive because there's all these empty ecological niches that need to be filled, and you know, those are just as fascinating as the giant die-offs. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just a pessimistic person that's <laughs> drawn towards the, the die-offs and not the rebirth. But yeah. um, So what would you want today's students reading your book to walk away from the book with? Um, a few things. I think um, a deep-time perspective is something that I think every citizen should try and cultivate. Um, and I mean, both for, for a few reasons. One is just for just the general sense of awe and understanding your place in the universe. But the other is, I think if we're going to endure as a species, we need to start thinking about these long timescales and, you know, what our role is on the planet and how we can, you know, not just survive to the next election cycle, but, yeah. you know, to the next <laughs> the next few thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is, I went into this book, you know, really as a fan of paleontology and geology but I came away completely obsessed and I think that the biggest um, insight I got from the book is just that if no matter where you are in the country if you just look up the story of the rock underneath your feet it's usually pretty incredible Um, so and I grew up in New England where I used to think oh it's just all boring granite and I wish I lived Mm -hmm. in the southwest where there's T-Rexes and stuff but um, in this book, I learned, you know, that that granite, or in some cases, parts of old volcanic island chains that crashed into North America, of four hundred and, you know, actually I forget, but four hundred thirty <laughs> million years ago or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And some of it is pieces of old seafloor from off the coast of a supercontinent near the South Pole. And like, it just it's it sort of does the same thing for me that science fiction does. It's it. You see something on the side of the road, and you start just imagining these whole other worlds that existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true no matter where you are. So even places that um, I, I want, I tried to highlight places that you might not expect would be great fossil places, like Cleveland, Ohio, which has yeah. sends you know dig up these giant armored fish from four hundred million year or three hundred and sixty million years ago, and museums all around the world have fish from Cleveland, these old um, fossils from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, nearby in Cincinnati, you have all this incredible sea life from the Ordovician 450 million years ago. And, um, you know, right next to New York City here, we have the Palisades, which mm-hmm. are the volcanic plumbing for one of these massive volcanic events that almost killed life at the end of the tri- Triassic. So this stuff is all around us. And 
if you're a student, I think that's a cool, or a teacher, I think it's a cool way into getting people excited about this stuff. Um, not just memorize, I mean, memorizing different kinds of rocks, but like actually just learning about the rocks around you is a great way into it. Mm-hmm. Seeing how all this sort of shaped the world yeah, around right, us today. Right. Um, so we have one more question for you. Uh, so we asked this of all of our guests on the podcast. Since this is primarily aimed for teachers, educators, their students, who is your favorite teacher? My favorite teacher? Um, I'd say it was probably my mom. She was a children's librarian. And I think she just realized that surrounding her kids with books, um, it wasn't even that she taught us you know, anything specific. It was more mm-hmm. like, here's this world of you know, knowledge and words and just sort of dive in. And um, I said at the beginning of the book that part of my you know, inspiration for all this stuff was as a kid, there would just be boxes of books around the house and some of which were, you know, kind of stu- not the most literary thing in the world, but like pop- pop-up books of, mm-hmm. of, of <laughs> dinosaurs and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess that was my best, my sort of the best educational experience I had as a kid, just being surrounded by books. That's great. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.